This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Glenn Hirsch, Chief of the Division of Cardiology at National Jewish Health and St. Joseph Hospital in Denver, Colorado, where he is also Medical Director of the Cardiovascular Service Line. Dr. Hirsch, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you. Thanks for the invitation, and it's an honor to be here. Now, I know we've got a lot to talk about, a lot happening in the cardiology space, but before we dive into my questions, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. I'm originally from the Chicago suburbs and uh, went to the University of Michigan. Um, It was there that I actually um, ended up working in research, mostly because I needed to pay my bills as an undergrad, but I was fortunate enough to land in the lab of uh, Francis Collins who's currently the director of the National Institutes of Health, and I went from doing some pretty menial jobs to realizing you can get on the cutting edge of research and started doing um, a search for the promoter for the CFTR gene. Then went on to medical school, went back to Chicago, went to Loyola University of Chicago, and then um, ended up going back to Michigan for residency. I didn't think I would go back there, but I really enjoyed the, uh, the depth of the research opportunities there as well. And, you know, was fortunate enough to get connected with people like uh, Sanjay Rajagopal and then Bert Pitt and Betsy Mabel there. Um, from there, I went on to uh, a fellowship in cardiology at Johns Hopkins and the National Institutes of Health and did my research in cardiac MRI in the Laboratory of Cardiac Ener- Energetics, NHLBI with Andrew O'Reilly and others. Um, and back to Baltimore and stayed at Johns Hopkins on faculty for eight years. Wow, that's quite a career journey and so many different experiences. How did those previous experiences influence what you're doing today? You know, it's interesting. I did not come from a family of doctors, so I wasn't sure exactly where I was going. But somehow along the way, I met some great mentors. I didn't mention all of them uh, in there. Uh, certainly, Bob Weiss and Gary Gerstenbluth played a huge role. Roger Blumenthal, Steve Shulman. Um, you know, I loved doing the research, and I and I started really at the bench, and then uh, you know doing basic research, and then doing clinical research, and even working with engineers and biomedical engineering with cardiac MRI, and then sort of doing translational work with that. Um, and as soon as I finished training, I ended up, I should have done it as a fellow, but I went to the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, and got a master's in cardiovascular epidemiology. So really the full spectrum of you know, bench to bedside, but also public health in the big picture with epidemiology. The reason I mention that is once you get into leadership, having a, a working knowledge of a lot of different fields can be really useful. Um, and so... When I started as faculty, I was doing all this research and, you know, rounding in the CCU, reading echoes, and uh, doing especially imaging research. But I was really passionate about education, too. And so I became the associate program director uh, for internal medicine uh, on the Johns Hopkins Bayview campus and really learned a lot about recruiting and program development and leadership there. Um, That sort of dovetailed into another opportunity that came out of nowhere with Johns Hopkins uh, International, and the project was this. Um, Patron of that in Tobago has premature coronary disease, uh, improved cardiovascular care on the islands in four years, and it was a multi-million dollar collaboration. Uh, you know, the, the 
the country really had one cardiologist in the public sector, a million people in premature coronary disease. So I learned a lot about, uh, you know, this huge task in front of us. And, you know, there were other people who were major players in this, but we developed a fellowship there to train more people in cardiology. We trained the primary care physicians, helped develop systems of care. Again, a, a really big group effort there. But that just got me really excited about building programs. You know, there's a lot of ways to do innovation. And, you know, with research, you know, you're always excited if you have breakthroughs, how you can scale that to populations. When it comes to education and program development, you still have the same effect. If you train hundreds or thousands of residents and fellows, medical students, they go on to treat thousands and thousands of people over the course of their career. So they're all really rewarding in different ways. Um, but, I, but I found, you know, that this, this sort of stepping into leadership was, it's very challenging, um, but being the wind in other people's sails actually is really rewarding uh, as well. And, and it's been a great fit for me which I've done for years now. That's really great to hear. And, you know, when you think about that mix between um, having your clinical practice and then being an administrative leader and a leader of physician teams, how do you really balance doing both of those things? Well, I'll say having clinical chops helps a lot. I mean, I went into medicine, not for research initially, not for building being a leader, a program developer. In fact, I've done a lot of things that I said I would never do. I kind of saw people in suits in the hospital and didn't like them just, you know, based on nothing. Um, but the reality is, you know, if you're a good doctor, you know, you need to get, you, you need that to, to get some buy-in and respect from people. But I really look at the leadership part as sort of a service. It's really unselfish because it's not about you. And in fact, you're, you're trying to inspire people to work towards common goals that are bigger than myself or even them as a group. And that's what the really exciting part about it is. That's a really great point. Um, now, Dr. Hirsch, what are some of the biggest issues that you're following in healthcare today? Well, whether we like it or not, you have to follow uh, some of the challenges related to the pandemic. Um, led to a lot of challenges with staffing. And... It's not just the doctors or the nurse practitioners or PAs, but all of the staff, whether it's sonographers or technologists in the cath lab or OR staff. And so we've had to be really creative about ways to recruit, retain, build a pipeline for the future. Because this has been something, you know, it's really hard to predict the future. If you asked me five years ago, well, what are going to be your biggest challenges? I would not have said facing the pandemic and dealing with the great resignation. But as part of leadership, you know, it's, uh, I guess it's job security. There's a lot of unpredictability to it, and you have to be nimble and uh, be able to pivot and, and be creative and help problem solve. And, you know, if you built a great team around you, it makes it easier to solve problems as well. Got it. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, is like you mentioned, something that so many different healthcare organizations and divisions are dealing with and trying to figure out today. And when you think about building that great team, what is kind of the, the most important aspect to you of, of building that team around you to make sure that you're sustainable and, and thriving for the future? That's a great question. I actually asked that question of Clyde Yancey uh, years ago uh, when I was a little, obviously earlier in the past in my leadership career. And I mentioned some challenges I was having and what was working, what wasn't. And he said, do you know the three most important things in 
building a program? And I said, no. The number one is the people. Two is the people. Number three is the people. <laughs> and so I, it makes a lot of sense. Obviously, you can't have a, everyone be an all-star. Um, it's very difficult. And, but I think in addition to the people, it's building the culture uh, around that. You know, you have to look and, and see why would anyone want to be led with you or why would anyone want to work where you're trying to recruit them and sort of build to that. So, you know, people want to come to work every day. Because it's, although, you know, anyone who's in leadership knows people will always ask for more money or other things, and those are realities. Um, There's a lot more that goes into showing up at work every day. Got it. I think that makes a ton of sense. And now thinking about the field of cardiology and heart surgery, how is the field changing today? Yeah, the thing that's really exciting about cardiology, cardiac surgery, vascular surgery, the innovation is just unbelievable. I mean, it's happening everywhere. Of course, I'm biased because I'm in cardiology. But, it, you know, it's the number one killer is cardiovascular disease. And so there's a lot of funding, and both from the government and the federal and private space. And so some of the things, and there are a lot, are related to devices, the miniaturization of the devices, smaller catheters. Know, doing cardiac catheterizations from the arm instead of the leg, eventually we'll have LVADs that are small and can be recharged percutaneously uh, to be more permanent solutions and, and help with some of that organ shortage for transplants. Um, doing valve replacements through your leg is pretty uh, remarkable, and you know they're hitting most of the valves now, at least even in the research side, to be able to replace or repair things from your leg. And people could go home the next day or within a couple of days. It's pretty unbelievable. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of excitement about um, diagnostics, you know, whether it's imaging advances. I'm I'm biased there because I did a lot of imaging work. But, you know, these non-invasive techniques, um, both for diagnosis, prognosis, and, uh, of course, biomarkers are are helpful there. On the therapeutic side, you know, besides the miniaturization of the devices, are better understandings of things like cardiogenic shock, Mortality remains very high. We have new devices like the Impella and other algorithms, and they look really promising, but we're, we're still working on better ways to do this, you know, creating multidisciplinary teams. That's kind of been a theme of the whole pandemic, whether it was with ECMO, shock teams, et cetera. Having these multidisciplinary teams are really useful. And then there's the other side of shock related to more inflammation, metabolism, and, and other places where there's room for improvement of our understanding of therapeutics. Some of the newer drugs like um, these SGLT2 inhibitors were started uh, started off being used for diabetes and shown to have other effects. It sort of reminds me of statins where when they came out, you know, the, the effects seem outsized compared to the, you know, the lipid lowering. And so we realized these pleiotropic effects. We're seeing that with SGLT2 inhibitors, the GLP-1 receptor agonists. So there's a lot of exciting work there. And sort of the recognition with vascular disease is it's not just about the lipids. You know, it's a constellation of things between lipids, coagulation, inflammation, sort of interactions, hypertension. There's there's a lot about the metabolism. And so there's going to be more therapeutics in that. Obviously, there's exciting work on the genetic side with eventual gene editing, but uh, there's some things even like with cystic fibrosis where Trikasta came out and for people with the Delta F508 
mutation. They've I've seen them here in clinic. They see some of my pulmonary colleagues. They it's remarkable how much better they're doing. Um, so this sort of precision medicine is exciting. Whether we wanted it or not, here it is. This is another example of not being able to predict the future. Long COVID, this post-acute sequelae of COVID has been a real challenge. Uh, a lot of our clinics are filling up with patients, especially if you work in a center that has a post-COVID center for care and recovery type model. Um, and, and that's challenging both figuring out the path of physiology, the best treatment, but we really need multidisciplinary groups there too. And the NIH has put out $1.15 billion in funding to understand this better. A lot of this has been going on for years after viral infections. This was poorly understood. You know, and there's overlap with chronic fatigue syndrome, but there's it's multiple uh, factors. There are multiple factors that have gone into the technology of long COVID and some of the autoimmunity. And so our therapeutics, I think, for POTS, Postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome are finally going to get more targeted and better. Um, so that'll be exciting to watch too. Wow. Yeah. It just sounds like there's so many different opportunities and ways to improve um, the quality of care and really, you know, the ability to treat patients and outcomes as well. So that's awesome to hear. And, you know, we talked a lot about some of the innovations and the um, things that are excited about in that realm. Is there anything else that you're really excited about for the future? Yes, I am really, you got to be excited, right? To show mm -hmm. up to work every day. One of the silver linings of the pandemic has been cutting through some of the red tape. A lot of the challenges in medicine are related to burnout right now. People spend a lot of time training and develop incredible expertise. And some of it gets their time gets lost in the weeds of the administrative and bureaucratic parts of medicine. And with the pandemic, we've been able to use more telehealth, digital health. Um, there's a lot more coming out from industry related to wearables and the precision of those wearables. Um, you know, how are we going to use all these sort of low lift, easy to use technologies to deliver care? You know, instead of the fee for service show up every day, whether you need to come or not, because people don't get paid for that, and that obviously ties into value-based care. But one of the biggest challenges, and it's been there before, you know, preceding the pandemic, is healthcare delivery. But the gap from the time we know the evidence till people start using it at the bedside can be five years or more. And so I do think there's going to be the ability to help people bring evidence to the bedside easier using some of these digital things. But Really, you haven't heard me say EMR yet because I think there's going to be a transformation of the electronic health records and how we use them. And it's going to happen one way or another. It has to because people are, you know, I just told you we can put in new heart valves through your leg, but yet people are leaving medicine over their EHR inbox. You know, this this burnout is it's a real challenge. You know, it's sort of, you know, it seems like for doctors there's a lot of altruism and uh, really trying to do the right thing for patients, but most of it's after hours or you know, doing extra clicks here and there and waiting for your EHR. You know exactly what you want to do, but it shouldn't take you extra hours just waiting or documenting in ways that don't show up on a dashboard. Because to the to the doctors who, and all the providers and the whole team who works really hard, it doesn't look like you did any work even if you spent hours there because it's not counted. So we have to change and transform the way we're delivering healthcare. Um, you know, obviously that'll tie into value-based care. How do we pay for that? How does the system work that way? But what we can't keep doing is more of the same or just adding 
oh, it's just one more click. You know, most people, if a doctor hears that, they're pretty upset. There was a, a study years ago looking at ER shifts, and the average physician did 4,000 clicks in one shift. So there was an article wow. in 2018 by James Allen. It, it says 30 million mouse clicks, and then you die. And <laughs> it, really, it really touches on this. Um, you know, I... I think a lot of that where people just feel like it's just one more click, it's often waiting or there was some quote-unquote upgrade to an EHR system that you weren't aware of. And, you know, it's the difference between someone making their kid's soccer game or not on a weekend or uh, getting, you know, to see their family for dinner. Uh, so it's a real problem. One way or another, it's going to get fixed. And I'm, I am really looking forward to doing that. But because of capturing data, a lot of it's going to be passive. We're going to be able to study it better, do analytics, do artificial intelligence, predict outcomes, predict costs, um, and that's going to help inform the value-based care uh, models better. Because one of the challenges everyone knows, oh, we'd rather just pay for you know a bigger fee and or an overarching fee and not have to track all the bureaucratic stuff of inter intermittent episodic care, um, like fee for service is. Uh, but we haven't had the data to really inform it. I think that is going to help us. Uh, start moving that way. Well, Dr. Hirsch, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fascinating discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.